The emergence of COVID-19 has forced the legal industry to rapidly undergo a fundamental transformation. I'm Jack Newton, CEO and co-founder of Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal software provider. In each episode of Daily Matters, we'll explore what this new normal means for law firms, how legal professionals can find success while working remotely, and how lawyers can best serve their clients during this unprecedented situation. Today's guest is David Latt, who is the founding editor of Above the Law, one of the foremost websites in legal, and the managing director at Lateral Link, a legal recruiting firm. Many of you are aware that David just went through a very difficult and very scary fight with COVID-19. He was hospitalized in New York City and spent 17 days in the hospital, six of them on a ventilator. David, we're extremely grateful to have you with us, not only that you're able to join the podcast, but also that your health has progressed to the point that it has. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jack. It's great to be here uh, in more ways than one. You know, I usually open this show uh, by asking, how are you and your family doing? But this time that, that question carries a lot more weight than usual. So uh, I know you obviously haven't been well, but tell me how you're doing now and, and how things have changed over the last uh, week or so for you. So I was in the hospital for 17 days, uh, but I've been now out of the hospital for almost as long, uh, two weeks, uh, today actually, Wednesday, April 15. Uh, I'm doing better, uh, I have good energy, I feel very clear-headed, uh, I have a somewhat hoarse voice, which you can hear, but it gets better each day. And my main issue is I just get winded or out of breath from very low level activities like walking uh, or climbing a flight of stairs. Uh, but I understand that that should get better over time. So no, I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, I'm here with my family. We're staying at my parents' house actually uh, out in uh, the New Jersey suburbs. Normally we live in Manhattan. I'm here with my husband and our two-year-old son, and uh, yeah, we're all doing well, hanging in there. <clears throat> well, I'm, I'm so happy to hear you're on, you're on the path to recovery, and, and you feel like those, those lingering symptoms, like the, the difficulty in breathing, are, are getting a little bit better every day, or do you feel uh, like they're, they're leveling off? Uh, they do get better. Uh, it's not total uh, linear progress. Some days feel better than others, but the overall trend uh, is, is upward. Uh, and, and do you have any other uh, after effects from the, the illness, David? I've, I've read that there's been uh, some, some symptoms uh, or, or results of COVID-19, impacts of COVID-19 that I wasn't aware of. For example, I read recently that about half of patients uh, that have become severely impacted by COVID-19 have lost their sense of smell entirely and, and other, uh, you know, what ultimately will be really, really high impact impacts on, on their lives. Have you seen any, any other uh, impacts in your experience? Uh, I've been very fortunate. Uh, I definitely have my sense of smell and taste back. I've been eating quite well over the past two weeks. Uh, and I also don't believe I have any uh, cognitive impacts, which uh, some patients, especially those who were in the ICU as I was for almost a week, sometimes report. So overall, uh, I feel, I, I feel I'm pretty fortunate. Great, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. And, and, and David, I know this has been a, a harrowing month for you, and as you pointed out, it's, it, it's, it's just about a, a month front to back from your hospitalization to today. Uh, for the members of our audience who may not have followed your ordeal as, as closely as we have, do you mind walking through uh, the last month and, and what that looks sure. like for you? So I started to get symptoms in early March, around March 7 or 8, 
uh, initially I was just fatigued and I thought, well, maybe I need a little more sleep or something. But then a few days later, I started to get fever and chills. And then a few days after that, basically about a week or so into it, uh, I started getting a very bad cough and shortness of breath. And that's when I thought that I might have the uh, novel coronavirus, COVID-19. So uh, on Sunday, the 15th of March, I went to the ER the first time, uh, but uh, I couldn't get a COVID-19 test that day. It's very difficult uh, here sometimes to get that test. Uh, so they sent me home, uh, but th there was a, definitely a thought that I might have it because they gave me a cold flu test and determined that my symptoms were not caused by a common strain of the cold or flu. I then returned Monday, March 16, because by then uh, I was having very severe trouble breathing. And they admitted me, <clears throat> they gave me supplemental oxygen almost immediately because I needed it. Uh, they did test me at that time for COVID-19 and the test uh, came back positive. So then I was admitted to the hospital. I was in stable condition for a couple of days. Uh, they started giving me medications. First, uh, an antiviral called Kaletra. Then they gave me the combination of hydrochloroquine and azithromycin, which we've heard so much about in the news. Mm -hmm. uh, but my condition didn't improve. And uh, on the Friday of that week, uh, late at night, going into Saturday, uh, I was told I would need to be put on a ventilator. <clears throat> so that terrified me uh, because my dad, who's a doctor, had actually warned me a few days earlier, you better not get put on a ventilator. Not everyone comes back from that. And kind of a depressing thought, but he's right. If you now look at the statistics that we have today, which fortunately I didn't have back then, they show that 50% or more of patients on ventilators don't survive. <clears throat> so I was put on this ventilator. I don't remember much about it. Uh, it was kind of a blank to me, but I was on it for about six days. <clears throat> this is the machine that essentially serves as your lungs when you're unable to breathe on your own. And then luckily after the six days, they were able to take me off. I was able to breathe on my own again with the help of supplemental oxygen. They were giving me extra oxygen. And then over the next week or so, <clears throat> they gradually reduced that supplemental oxygen until I could breathe on my own. Uh, and then at that point, uh, on April 1, uh, they discharged me. And I've been pretty much recovering at home ever since. <clears throat> I'm actually at my parents' house, uh, which is a better place to recover than our cramped New York apartment. And uh, I pretty much, uh, at this point, I shouldn't be contagious and I should be immune. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, we're pretty much staying home. We, we don't really go out. <clears throat> and you're... Your husband had also come down with COVID-19, but had much milder symptoms from what I understand. Is that right? Uh, yes. So my husband uh, also got it. He got symptoms a little bit after I did. So perhaps he got it from me or perhaps he got it from the same source and it just uh, sort of incubated for longer. Uh, but he had about a week of flu-like symptoms, um, but uh, it never worsened to the point of, difficulty for, of breathing uh, for him. And can you describe uh, the rooms that you're in when you're, you're isolated, uh, when you're put on a ventilator, sound like just unbelievably uh, terrifying and isolating environments to be in. Can you just describe what your physical environment was like for that time? 
So with the COVID-19 patients, uh, to prevent the spread of the virus, they put you in so-called negative pressure rooms where air, to the extent that the virus is airborne, air from that room doesn't leak out into the hallways, into the rest of the hospital. Uh, Now, for the first week, week and a half I was there, I actually had my own room. And I have to say, at the hospital I was at, NYU Langone, the ICU is actually very nice. I mean, it, it felt like a hotel. There's an iPad or a tablet by each bed where you can watch movies or order food. It was actually, by hospital standards, quite luxurious. Uh, but then after I got better, uh, you know, they saved the ICU for the most severely ill patients. I got moved into a different part of the hospital, and that was more standard hospital. And I actually shared a room with three other patients, uh, all of us, of course, with COVID-19. One thing also that is isolating is you can't be visited, no relatives, no family members, no friends. So it's really just you. And to minimize their own exposure, uh, understandably so, the doctors and nurses try not to come in that often because each time they come in and come out, they have to get a new set of uh, personal protective equipment, change the gown, ideally, you know, change the mask, although now we're hearing about reusing of masks, wash their hands. So it's a whole big thing. So they try not to come in too often. So a lot of the time, you're just on your own. And can you tell us about the, you, you briefly described at the opening, some of the, the lingering impacts you're seeing from, uh, from your run-in with, with COVID-19. Can you describe in, in a bit more detail what life looks like on the other side of being, being hospitalized? What did being discharged look like? Is there a special treatment for you? Just, do you just get in the next yellow cab that goes by? Um, and, and you mentioned that you've been continuing to quarantine yourself, but, but uh, would love to, to get a, a bit of a richer view of what, what your new normal looks like. So uh, when they discharged me, uh, they put me in a wheelchair and a hospital attendant essentially wheeled me out uh, to the curb. They don't let you go home by mass transit or by an Uber or anything. Uh, they still t- take precautions around COVID-19 patients. You are allowed to be picked up by a friend or family member in their own private vehicle. So my husband and my parents-in-law uh, picked me up. <clears throat> Luckily, they have a, a, um, an SUV basically with three rows. So I sat in the back row and I still had my mask on to, to be safe. Uh, and then they drove me out to my parents' house in New Jersey which is where we've been ever since. Uh, And for me, uh, most of the time I've been, you know, I I try to walk a little each day. Uh, I try to stretch. Maybe I'll lift very light weights, Um, but I just have to take it easy because I'm not really in a position to do much physical activity. And so this process could take weeks or months to the point where I can exercise again, or I can feel comfortable uh, engaging in, uh, vigorous activity. So, so David, you, you mentioned when you got put on the ventilator, you, you appreciated the, the gravity of that situation, uh, perhaps with the, the unintended foreshadowing that your, your father gave you and, and his, his advice that you don't want to be put on a ventilator, um, not that you had much choice in the matter. I, I think it was actually one, I, one of the articles you linked to off of your Twitter feed that I was reading, talking about the fact that to your, to your comment around the survival rate of those that are put on a ventilator, uh, one of the, the doctors in New York commenting on the fact that when he puts somebody on a ventilator, he says, 
you should call your loved ones uh, and, and say your goodbyes in, in case this doesn't work out the way we hope it does. You've, you've got 15 minutes. And it, it felt like you really appreciated the gravity of what being put on a ventilator meant and that you were you know, staring death in the face. And, and I'm, I'm curious to hear what your, what your mindset was like at that moment and, and maybe how this has changed your perspective on, on life. I've, I've got to imagine this is in, in more ways than one, a, a life altering experience. So I was, I was terrified uh, when they told me I had to be put on the ventilator because I then realized that this was a serious situation. So I remember I was just praying the Hail Mary over and over again. And I just thought to myself that <clears throat> this wasn't my time. I, I didn't want to die. I think sometimes in the abstract, people think, oh, I've lived a full life. If it's my time, it's my time. But I thought to myself, I, no, there's, there's a lot that I, I still want to see. Uh, I mentioned I have a two-year-old son. I'd like to see him grow up. I just thought, uh, you know, I, it's not, I'm not ready to, to go. Uh, so I was quite terrified in the moment. Since coming out of the hospital, uh, again, it's a bit cliched, but I feel I do have a newfound appreciation for life. I just realize, uh, especially reading stories of other people who are not so fortunate, uh, I realize how fragile it is and how easily it can be lost. Uh, so I have a newfound appreciation for life and <clears throat> also for relationships because when I was sick, I got a lot of support from family and friends and also total strangers, people I just met off Twitter say. And I think it's given me a newfound appreciation just for the importance of relationships and human connection. That support you mentioned on on Twitter is something I I personally have never <laughs> never seen. Uh, you know, you're you're probably the closest person I am to somebody that has been severely uh, impacted by by COVID-19 and I was following your your case closely and and rooting for you as were tens or or maybe hundreds of thousands of of others I know that there was a post uh, you know with, with basically a, a Twitter vigil for David Latt with uh, thousands of comments and and a hundred thousand plus likes it was it was really pretty incredible to see that widespread support both from the legal community which really I think uh, uh, was was supporting you as as best they and and as you mentioned from from total strangers, it was it was something pretty uh, incredible to see from the outside, and and I hope it was something you could at least partially appreciate from inside the hospital. Although I know your uh, from your interview with Bob Ambrosia, you mentioned that when you were on the ventilator, you were a little bit out of it. You you weren't completely cogent due to some of the drugs you were on. I think I drew a lot of support as I was struggling with this from from all of the people around the world who were praying for me, pulling for me sending encouraging words my way. So David, one of the things I'd like to dig into is uh, in your interviews with the Washington Post and Business Insider, you discussed the importance of ventilators and also articulated your frustration around the fact that there's a scarcity of these machines in the United States. Uh, and, and, and really, it's probably fair to say that you're alive today because there was a ventilator uh, available to help you breathe and help you survive. Can, can you talk a little bit about uh, your, your perspective on, on that? 
So obviously as somebody who owes his life in many ways to a ventilator, and of course to the doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists who operate it and make it uh, into this life-saving device that it is, uh, I am, I'm really uh, upset that we're even talking about ventilator shortages. Now we've been fortunate in the sense that there hasn't yet been widespread rationing. We've heard stories of people of hospitals using one ventilator for two patients say, but we've been fortunate in the sense that we've been able to move things around. Uh, but really it's, it's really a, a disgrace in a way that a country as wealthy as ours is having this kind of discussion around ventilators. Uh, but on the positive side, <clears throat> one, uh, there are now new approaches to treating COVID-19 patients that may reduce the need for ventilators, including, for example, so-called proning, or putting uh, patients in the prone position where they're on their stomachs. I was actually put in this position when I was on the ventilator, but now research is showing that it can be good for patients even before they're on the ventilator and maybe prevent them from going on the ventilator. So one, maybe our need for ventilators will decline. And two, uh, we are now belatedly ramping up production. I know GM, for instance, is working on uh, ventilators. There are a bunch of people who are trying to come up with new designs for ventilators, including maybe some low cost ones. I'd love to talk about the, the way you shared out what was happening with you on social media. So I, I think you've been, from my perspective, at least one of the more visible uh, people that's been, been impacted by COVID-19. Uh, and and you've, you've shared your story, you're, you're tweeting from your, your hospital bed. Uh, I, I think uh, for those that want to uh, check you out on, on Twitter, I think uh, your pinned tweet right now is a, a photo of you from, from the hospital bed. And uh, uh, I think the look on your face reflects uh, just what a harrowing experience this, uh, this was. Um, can, can you just talk about what it was like sharing out what was probably for, for you, the, the, the biggest and widest response you've ever had to something you've shared out on, uh, on social media and, and what kinds of responses you've got that were, were both, you know, positive and, and, and maybe not as, as positive in terms of the kind of responses you got. So initially, uh, when I went on Twitter and Facebook to announce that I had COVID-19, it was really to notify people who had interacted with me in case they got symptoms and wanted to get tested. That was right. my original impetus. But I got such a response to those initial postings that I thought, uh, there's a real hunger out there for more information about this new disease that we don't know a lot about. So I thought uh, it could be useful uh, <clears throat> to people if I were to describe my struggle with it in real time in terms of symptoms and treatments and recovery. Uh, so I started doing that and uh, I found that it really did resonate and most of the responses, the vast majority of responses I have received have been positive. Usually people telling me when I was sick, get well soon, I hope you feel better. Sometimes people giving advice about treatment or recovery. Um, occasionally, there might be something negative, usually around the more politicized aspects of this. For example, hmm. hydrochloroquine, which has become a very politicized uh, topic right. because the president, uh, President Trump has supported it. Other people criticize his support of it, given uh, we don't have conclusive evidence about it. So occasionally there's something negative associated with a politically charged topic. But for the most part, it's been very positive. I've heard from fellow uh, patients, sufferers, fellow survivors, people with loved ones who have it who are struggling. 
who find hope in the fact that I, I did get off the ventilator. Maybe their loved one is on the ventilator. Uh, so it's been really inspiring to actually connect with people over social media about this. David, when I started reading about your case, uh, you know, I was, I was surprised you came down with COVID-19. You're, you're a, a relatively young guy. Uh, you are active. I, I think you've, you're a three-time New York marathon finisher. Uh, so, so you're, you're, you're fit, you're active. And certainly I, I don't think fit what many of us may have in our minds as the, the, the typical profile of a, of a COVID-19 patient. Um, but you're, you're not alone in uh, the, the people that have been impacted by COVID-19, been infected by COVID-19, that don't fit uh, maybe that, that, that profile that we all have in mind. What would your message be for, for those that aren't taking the disease seriously, maybe because they, they feel like they, uh, they may be young and fit and, and immune to this disease? Uh, so uh, I'm 44, which is relatively young. Uh, I did uh, complete the New York Marathon twice, although admittedly it was a long time ago and I wasn't very fast. Uh, but even more recently, before I had COVID-19, I would go to the gym and do high-intensity interval training classes multiple times a week, uh, not overweight, don't smoke, don't use drugs, barely drink. So I felt I was in fairly good health. But <clears throat> the one asterisk to that is I do have exercise-induced asthma which never really bothered me. I would just use an inhaler. But I think this condition did make me more vulnerable to a severe case of COVID-19. Uh, I think my message would, to folks would be, look, this is not just a disease or virus that hits 85-year-olds. It can uh, hit people who are younger and uh, including people who don't necessarily have uh, other health conditions. Even though I had this asthma, I've since read about a lot of other people who did not seem to have these conditions. For example, a 45-year-old doctor out in uh, Washington State who used to play college football and led his team to the Rose Bowl. And I don't think he had any other conditions and wound up uh, uh, even worse off uh, than I was. Uh, when I was in the hospital, one of my sweet mates was a 40-year-old, so even younger than I am. So uh, I think we really need to take this disease seriously and not just dismiss it as something for old people or people with existing lung or kidney conditions. Uh, this is something that can strike a lot of different people and hit people pretty hard. Well, do me a favor, David, and when you're fully recovered, run the New York Marathon another time so I can be retroactively correct in the statement that you've, uh, you've run it three times. Um, so, David, you recently linked to a really fascinating uh, New York Times article uh, that, that actually talks about your case. Um, and it introduces this concept that, that I hadn't heard of before, um, but, but kind of the dark side of social distancing, uh, this, this term called psychological distancing. Um, and can, can you describe what psychological distancing is to our audience and, and, and maybe talk about how, how you've experienced that firsthand? So this uh, was a column in the New York Times by Jennifer Senior, who interviewed me for it. And what she describes as psychological distancing is this attempt in your mind to put distance between you and people you hear about or read about who suffer from COVID-19. So you see this a lot of the time when people say, oh, uh, that person isn't me, they're 20 years older. Or, oh, 
that person has diabetes. Or in my case, that person has asthma. Uh, people would say, I think people are trying to, it's a coping mechanism, I guess I would right. say, because people are scared and they don't want to think that this disease could necessarily come for them. So they try to say, uh, it's kind of like distinguishing legal cases. They try to say, look, that's not me because we have this factor that, that right. uh, makes us different. But I think what Jennifer points out in her column is, look, if we're going to actually overcome this, we need to actually have solidarity. We need to think of ourselves as in this battle together, not just fragmenting ourselves and trying to draw these fine distinctions between ourselves and the sufferers. So I think, in, but look, so I would say that psychological distancing is not a good thing, but I think it is an understandable thing because people are scared. I, I think you're right. It's, it's a coping mechanism, but I guess it can also drive so many unhealthy behaviors and unhealthy impacts from, from that kind of a, a mindset. It's not a mindset that we're, we're all in this together and we need to help each other get through this. It, it feels like it rapidly devolves into a, you know, us versus them, those that feel invincible and those that are susceptible. Um, and, you know, as, as, uh, as this, this column details almost this, this aggressive search for an understanding as to why somebody got infected. There's got to be something in your medical history. There's got to be something that made you, you vulnerable to this. Um, can, can you talk a little bit more about how, how you think psychological distancing uh, is maybe not the right way to approach this, this illness? And is there an alternate perspective you would, you would advocate for? Well, uh, as I was saying, I think that psychological distancing is not a good approach because we need to work together and not think of ourselves as mm -hmm. separate. But I was struck when I posted Jennifer's column on Twitter by the number of people who said, actually, I do the opposite. And I think the opposite is really empathy, uh, is really trying mm -hmm. to put yourself in the shoes of people who have it or people who've survived it. And I did hear from a lot of people on Twitter about how when they hear about cases, they often think, there but for the grace of God go I. That could have been me. This person is younger. This person is healthier. This person shares a lot of similarities to me. Uh, so uh, I don't think everyone does engage in this. There are a good number of people who engage in the opposite. Right. Totally agree. We're, we're seeing both spectrums <clears throat> of, of human behavior on, <clears throat> on display here. So, David, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, uh, how did your work life fit into all of this? And obviously, uh, you know, being hospitalized for 17 days and uh, you've been on the path to recovery for two weeks now, but, but uh, uh, I'm not sure if you're, you're in condition to be, you know, back at, at, at work or not. Can you just talk through what the impacts have been on your professional life and what do the next few months look like for you in that regard? Uh, so my colleagues at uh, Lateral Link, the recruiting company I work with, have been great and very supportive. Uh, recruiting is a very flexible business, so I've been able to do things from home. Uh, my colleagues at Above the Law, where I still write a column, uh, have been great as well. Uh, I was able to write a column uh, shortly after coming home. Uh, in terms of my other writing, I've also been able to write uh, pieces for other publications. I've done two pieces for the Washington Post. Uh, so I feel I have been productive. Uh, part of that is, uh, luckily, uh, the disease and the treatment didn't really take a mental toll on me. It's been mainly physical. So I have been able to work. 
And I've heard from a lot of people, a lot of people within the legal profession you know, who've reached out just to see how I was doing or to send good wishes my way. So in some ways it's been very good. Uh, it's, been, it's been good at uh, expanding and strengthening my, my network in some ways. Uh, but I have to say, to be honest, my focus right now is not too much on work. I'm still mm-hmm. focused on recovery and I'm also still focused on following coverage of this virus and um, sharing information over my Twitter feed and uh, perhaps I'll write a couple of other pieces as well. So uh, I'm not fully back to work 100% yet. And has maybe to our earlier question, just on how this has changed your perspective on, on life overall, uh, does, does it change your perspective on, on, on work as it relates to your health and the rest of your life? I think it does put things in perspective. And uh, in some ways, it can be very good uh, because I don't really get bent out of shape by minor annoyances now because when you just think about the big picture of life and death, it's hard to get worked up about right. some irritating person or someone who didn't return your call or whatever minor thing you normally would get upset over. Um, but, you know, at the same time, uh, I do need to sort of recover my motivation because uh, it, it's a weird time for all of us. We're working remotely. We don't see our colleagues. Uh, we sometimes feel a little demoralized or depressed uh, from mm-hmm. that lack of contact. So I think for all of us, myself included, we just have to figure out ways to maintain our motivation and our momentum uh, in our jobs during a time that is just so weird and strange and, and disorienting. So I, I'd love your perspective for a moment, David, on, on, on maybe the legal industry and how you're <clears throat> seeing the, the challenges that the legal industry is facing and, and you've maybe got uh, a, a, a truly a unique perspective on this in that you were maybe pulled out of the day-to-day fray of what's going on in legal uh, with, with your hospitalization and, and subsequent recovery. Um, but, but you've got such a, a from your, your experience above the law and, and elsewhere, such a in-depth perspective on, on the legal industry and, and this firsthand uh, experience with COVID-19. And, and also, I, I think you've been doing a phenomenal job of just tracking the, the impacts and the, uh, the broader story around COVID-19. So maybe you can pop up to the 10,000-foot the view for me and try to synthesize what you've seen firsthand with COVID-19 and of what you think the impacts on the, the legal industry will be and, and how you think the industry will have to change if it wants to emerge from this crisis at all, uh, or, or maybe if we're optimistic, even stronger than, than when it entered the crisis. So I think that uh, the legal industry has definitely been adjusting. Uh, partly, I think it's adjusting to the economic fallout from measures to contain COVID-19, such as the various uh, stay-at-home or lockdown orders. Uh, law firms are very much tied to their clients. A lot of businesses are suffering, whether it's airlines or restaurants or stores. <clears throat> and so uh, law firms have been adjusting. They've been uh, uh, delaying or reducing partnership draws. They've been furloughing or even laying off some 
uh, lawyers and staff. There has been this adjustment, um, but I feel that law firms are, are holding up pretty well. Um, a lot of law firms haven't had to do anything. And even the law firms that have made adjustments uh, hope that they'll just be temporary. Uh, so I feel that the legal world is being smart about it. It's not, uh, it's not in as bad shape as many other industries. <clears throat> and one thing I think good that could come out of this is uh, lawyers are learning how to adapt. They're learning about how to work remotely. Uh, people are learning now how to use tools like Zoom, which we're on now, and Skype. And I think in some ways, this will accelerate uh, the legal profession's openness to innovation, to new tools, to new technology, to remote working. Uh, so if we take away that lesson about flexibility and about the uh, power of technology to let us do our jobs from anywhere, uh, I think overall this could be good for the industry. But in the short term, there is going to be a lot of pain. I agree with you on that. And uh, David, I, I want to be uh, respectful of your uh, your time and and the fact that you're you're still recovering and and uh, uh, try to wrap up here. I feel like we could talk for another uh, hour easily, but uh, we'll maybe have to do a, a part two at some point. But um, last couple of questions. Number one, uh, and and you've touched on a a few aspects of this over the course of our conversation, but. Uh, if you had to distill it into one takeaway, what, what do you think you've learned from this experience? And, and happy to have you answer that in whatever way you like. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I have talked about my new appreciation for life and human connections. Uh, the thing I think I would want to emphasize that's new is just my newfound, I shouldn't say newfound, my dramatically increased respect and admiration for healthcare workers, doctors mm -hmm. and nurses, physicians, assistants, nurse practitioners uh, at the hospital that I was at, NYU Langone, they were so dedicated and they didn't lose their cool during stressful situations or when dealing with difficult patients. They are really the heroes of this. And I've always had great respect for the healthcare profession. Both of my parents are doctors. I have a lot of other relatives who are in the medical profession. Uh, but this really took it to another level to see what they have to deal with every day, especially when facing a pandemic like this. Uh, agree. The level of of courage uh, there is is just uh, just incredible. Uh, and to conclude, David, what's your main message to others at this time? Um, it's not terribly original, but I would tell people: look, uh, we have to take this seriously. Uh, I almost lost my life to it. I was in critical condition for about a week in the ICU, and so uh, the measures that we are taking. Uh, while not uh, pleasant in some ways, having to stay at home, frequent hand washing, wearing masks, uh, all of this, uh, it is a sacrifice. Uh, but if you think about the lives on the line and the lives that can be saved and the suffering that can be, be prevented, uh, it is worth it. That's a great way to wrap up. Uh, David, thanks so much for taking some time out of your recovery to speak with us today. I really appreciate it. And I know that that so many of our listeners uh, are keen to hear your story and, and so happy to hear about your recovery as it as it progresses. Would love to to check back in with you in a, a few weeks and, and, and see how you're doing and uh, your rapidly developing perspectives and ideas on, on the impacts of COVID-19 are, are something we're continuing to follow closely. So 
Uh, thanks once again, uh, and, and best of luck on the remainder of your recovery. Thanks so much, Jack. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com. 